Good morning, good morning. Good to see y'all. Getting chillier outside. Weather outside is frightful, as they say. So many of you know that I spent a great deal of my early adult years in restaurant management and playing in orchestras. And so I have often used those two places in my life to draw anecdotes and share with you, and there's been a great clamor over the years for more and more Little Caesars stories. (laughs) So I have one for you. It's not going to be that great, though. It's not going to be that funny. It's not going to be silly. I'm not going to throw pizza on anybody. But it is a Little Caesars story, so you take what you can get, okay? So... I started working at Little Caesars washing dishes when I was 15, sophomore year of high school, kept working through high school graduation, moved out to Denton, continued to work at a Little Caesars in Denton, and after about a year there, I was promoted to the assistant general manager, which is nothing. It's a bad, it's a little thing, a little piece of thing you put on your name tag, assistant general manager, so when somebody's angry about their pizzas, they got to talk to me. But I was still paid hourly, it wasn't a great gig, but I had some degree of authority and I was doing okay at the job. Then one day I came home from classes, because I was going to school, and I came home and I had a, 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 not a voicemail, a answering machine message. Listen kids, we used to have these machines that were gigantic and they had tapes in them. And when someone would call and you didn't answer, it would start recording on the tape. And then we would come home and rewind it and we would hit play and it would read the voicemail to us. Doesn't matter. Okay. So I have this message from my boss's boss. So my boss is the general manager. His boss is the area director. That guy is calling me at home and leaving me a message, which is real out of place because I never talked to the guy unless he was in the store telling us, this is too dirty, fix that, clean that, whatever. So I get this voicemail and he says, hey, Carl, give me a call back. We've had to let Dave go. That was my boss. They terminated him and they wanted to promote me to general manager. I was 19 years old at the time and I thought, I have made it. (laughs) So excited. And I called him back uh, and he said, yeah, we had to let him go. We'd we'd love for you to take over the store. And I was like, I'm ready. Put me in coach. This is going to be great. I did not know that in that same phone call, we would have the salary negotiation, uh, which, to be clear, I didn't know that that existed. I didn't know salary negotiations existed. I thought, you get hired for a job, they tell you how much they pay you, and then you say yes, and then they pay you that. And so he said, we are prepared to offer you $28,000 per year. And I thought to myself, that's the largest number that anyone has ever said to me that they wanted to give to me. And so, yes, please, I will take that. And so I was getting 28 grand for being a general manager at a Little Caesars Pizza. And I did that, and I enjoyed it, and I think I was pretty good at it, and it was a lot of fun. After a couple of years, I looked back on that phone call and realized through other conversations with other general managers that, one, 100% of them were making quite a bit more money than me, and two, that this idea of salary negotiation existed. I could have said to him, eh, I'm thinking more like 35, buddy. And he goes, mm, we'll do 32.5. You know, whatever. You understand how to negotiate. I did not. I did not know it was a thing. And so I didn't. And so now, having a few years under my belt, I look back and I thought, ooh, hey, I got ripped off. That guy did me wrong. Golly, how much money have I given up because I didn't know? Oh, man. Then more years pass. 
and I become a little older, a little wiser, and I look back and I realize asking a 19-year-old kid to be a general manager of your little restaurant is a big risk. They could ha- I could have fallen on my face, it could have gone really bad, and they could have lost a lot of money because they gave me that job. And so actually, it was actually pretty reasonable that they offered me this small number because I had no experience, I was very young, there was a lot of opportunity for me to get it wrong. And so in the beginning, the, during the phone call, I was like, this is the greatest day, general manager. I think it's going to be like actually engraved. It's not going to be like a label. It's going to be like engraved, Carl Brower, general manager. It's going to be so awesome. And then a few years later, I'm like, oh, it ripped me off. And then a few years after that, I'm like, no, I think they probably did the right thing. They were probably pretty smart in lowballing me because who knows? I could have been terrible. Similarly, because I misunderstood those circumstances more than once, I misunderstood what was going on. I had the wrong vision, the wrong view of what was taking place. I originally thought it was awesome, then I thought it was bad, then I thought it was reasonable. But my understanding of what was actually taking place is what changed my perspective. In a similar way, Jesus is hoping to help his hearers, his disciples in particular, and us now that we're reading the word, to understand what's really going on in this parable so that we might have a correct view of the kingdom of God. So let's pray, and then we will jump into this. Father, we thank you that you are good. You are gracious, you are kind, you are merciful, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in steadfast love towards your people. And we are the blessed beneficiaries of all those things. You have chosen to set your love upon us and to give us the beautiful gift of salvation in Christ. And not because we are good, and not because we deserved it, and not because we earned it, just because you are good, because of everything in you and nothing in us, you chose to rescue us from our sin, from the consequences that were due to us for our sin. And so we just bless your name. And we say thank you for being that kind of God, the kind of God who is so gracious and kind that out of an overflow of love that you would extend this gift to us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we read this little parable that your son taught, that we will understand it correctly and that that would cause us to understand you correctly, and that would cause us to worship you correctly. And so we can do nothing good apart from you, and so we ask for you to be near to us today. Help us to see the glory and the majesty of our God, the beauty and the wonder of our Savior, that those things would not be lost on us, that this would not just be a story that we read, this would not just be some intellectual exercise where we think about stuff and we have some cerebral knowledge, but rather that your word would transform us, that by your word, you would increase our understanding, which would increase our joy, increase our love. That at the end of the day, what our hearts would do is leap with joy at the knowledge that we have such a gracious and good God. And we thank you. We just thank you for being that God. So we pray that you'll help us by your spirit to understand your word correctly this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this. Amen. Okay. So let's begin. Verse number one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So this verse begins with the word for. For the kingdom. So he's connecting to what he just finished saying. So you probably already know this, but our Bible is divided up into chapters and verses, and those don't have any real significant bearing on the story that's being told or the letter that's being written. They're merely markers for us to be able to find the same spot in the scriptures together. So chapter 19 
isn't an end to something and chapter 20 is something new. Jesus is still talking, okay? At the end of chapter 19, in verse 30, Jesus has said, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then he goes into verse 1 of chapter, of chapter 30. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he's saying, last will be first, first will be last. You're probably confused by that. Let me help you. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to give you a parable that will help you understand this first, last, last, first thing. And he begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and we've heard him do this before. The kingdom of heaven is like this, it's like this, it's like this. He uses a lot of analogies to try to help his disciples understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. But this time, he's not comparing it to a thing. He's not saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Although it is like a grain of mustard seed, he has said that, and it is true. He's not saying it's like a leaven put into a measure of flour. Although he has said that, and it is true. He's not saying it's like a treasure in a field that some guy found and got very excited and bought the field. He has said that, and it is true. Today, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like a person. And what person? The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So our focus is meant to be where Jesus' focus is. He's focused on the master of the house. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's not focused on the workers. He's not focused on the quantity of money that those guys do or don't get. He's focused on the master of the house. Those other things matter. The workers and the pay play into our understanding of the master of the house. It's the master of the house that is the focus of Jesus's parable. And that's, so this whole idea of this master of the house going out to find laborers to work in his field is super duper normal. That would have been a normal practice. If you were a landowner and you had vineyards or crops or something like that, during the growing season, there's not nearly as much labor to do as there is at harvest. At harvest, there's a lot of labor that needs to happen quickly and you need more hands. So the idea of going and finding more laborers is super normal. And so he goes and kind of finds day laborers. The closest thing that we can experience in today's culture is literally like the day laborers that you might see at Home Depot. If you go down to Home Depot on 75 in the morning, you'll likely see a group of men standing, hoping that someone will pull up and hire them for the day. Someone will pull up in a pickup truck and say, hey, I need two guys to help me go stain a fence. You and you. And they jump in the back of the truck and off they go. They do the work and they get paid. That's what they're hoping for. That's what's, that's what's being dealt with here. So these men that are being chosen from would have been some of the more vulnerable people in this society. These people weren't landowners. They didn't have their own property to manage. They didn't come underneath the household of someone else. They didn't live at someone else's property and care for their stuff. These guys had no permanent occupation. These guys were just standing, hoping to get hired, hoping to get paid today so that I can feed my family today. There's no welfare system. There's no food stamps. There's no governmental system in place to care for these people. They either work for money or for food or they starve. Or someone is gracious and benefactoral. That's not a word. Let's pretend like I said the word that you think I wanted to say. So this is a normal thing. And so here he is choosing men to come and work in his vineyard. You, 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 and you. Come with me. We're picking grapes. And then he negotiates payment with them. Verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
Now, a ton of research has been done on this. I won't go into it, but the general consensus is one denarius is a normal, expected wage for a day's work, but not the kind of day's work you're thinking of. We think of a day's work as eight hours, nine to five, go home. A day's work at this time period is sunup to sundown. You work all day. It's a 12-hour day. So this denarius would have been a normal, expected wage for that amount of work. And it would have been sufficient to provide shelter, food, things like that, but not much more, right? You're not buying fancy clothes. You're not getting the latest Xbox, you know, or whatever. And so these hours during the day get talked about a lot in our passage. So let me just explain really quickly. Some of you probably already know this, but the, the day is broken up into 12 hours and, the, and it begins when the sun comes up and it ends when the sun goes down. For us, 6 a.m. is 6 a.m. We don't care what the sun is doing. Sometimes the sun is up at 6 a.m. Sometimes it is not, depending on the time of year and daylight savings time and all that nonsense. Right? But 6 a.m. is 6 a.m. For them, 6 a.m. is when the sun comes up. And 6 p.m. is when the sun goes down. So they divide that time into 12 hours. So they don't say 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. They say first hour, second hour, third hour, and so on. So the first hour is when the sun comes up, and for our purposes, 6 a.m. So here he is, early in the morning, probably 6, 6.30 in the morning. He's gathering men, and he's negotiating a payment with them. So these men agree to this price, this one denarius per day. That's reasonable. That's what we expected. That's what the other guys have paid us, generally speaking, when we've been hired. We're in. So we've agreed. All right, go into the vineyard and get to it. And so that first group of men is now in the vineyard doing the stuff, harvesting the grapes or whatever. We don't know exactly what they're doing, but presumably this is a harvest time. And so they're out there doing that for about three hours. Verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So we see that he observes others standing idle. When we hear the word idle, we think lazy. Stop being so idle. Get to it, bro. But this word actually just means without work. It means I'm here and I don't have anything to do. I want something to do, but I don't have anything to do, and so I'm standing idle. So it's not an insult. This is not a derogatory term. It's just a statement of fact. These guys are standing there with nothing to do. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So now we find out that it's actually in the marketplace. The marketplace is like the Home Depot, okay? The marketplace is where the guys gather, hoping to get hired. So he needs more workers. He, he came in the morning and hired a bunch, went to the fields, and now he's back three hours later and he wants more. Why? Why does he want more? more? Does, does he realize, ooh, I didn't get enough? The work's not getting done quickly enough? I need more guys? Does he just have pity on the guys that don't seem to have anything to do and probably need a job? We don't know. We don't know what his motives are. We just know that he's back three hours later wanting more guys. But this time, this group, he does not negotiate a particular price. This group, he just says, whatever is fair, that's what I'll give you. What does that mean? What does that even mean, right? Because that first group, he agreed on a specific dollar amount. But with the second group, he does not. What is right? What is fair for someone who starts mid-morning, who starts three hours late? I don't know. But they seem to think he's trustworthy, or at the very least, it's worth taking a chance, because at least this way I've got some work and I get some money. He thinks he'll give me whatever's fair. Great, I'll take it. 
He agrees to pay them fairly, and they choose to take him at his word. Verse 5. So they went. So this second group heads out into the vineyard. And then, going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So he did this at 6 a.m., he came back at 9 a.m., he comes back at noon, and he comes back at 3 p.m., each time finding more guys, sending them into the field, and not negotiating a specific price apart from the first group. What's this guy about? Does he not know how much labor it takes to deal with his field? He's grossly underestimated the first time. Now he needs a second and a third group and now a fourth group. Why is he doing this? This doesn't make sense. It seems like maybe he's bad at this. Maybe he doesn't know how to manage his stuff. Verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? So he's gone out five times now. 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3, and now 5 p.m. This is crazy. But again, the word idle doesn't mean something negative. It just means they have no work. And he says, why aren't you working? Verse 7, they answered him. They said to him, because nobody's hired us. No one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Doesn't say anything about paying them. Just go. And these guys are like, it's like 5 o'clock. Knocking off work time is like in an hour. Better than nothing. So they head into the field. He says, go into the vineyard too. Were these guys late? Did they sleep late? Were they hanging out in the field doing nothing, waiting to go to the marketplace late in the day? Were they there all day? The master of the house seems to think so. He says, why do you stand here idle all day? He seems to think they've been there all day, which might mean... The master of the house has seen these guys four previous times. And now he's here on the fifth time. He's like, all right, still nobody's hired you? Get in my field. Why is that? Were these guys weaker than the other men? Did they have a reputation as being not good workers? So they were less hireable? So the people that came to hire people were like, not those guys. I hired them before, and they weren't great. We don't know. We don't know why all these men are here and why they haven't been hired. We don't know the motivation of the master of the house specifically. But if that were the case, then these guys would be the last. They were the last ones to be picked by the master of the house, and they were the last ones picked, like, you know, the skinny kid at a kickball game. I guess we'll take Johnny, you know? And Johnny's like, why you got to say it like that, you know? We don't know what's going on. We just know he keeps coming back and he keeps hiring more people. Why are there more people available? Maybe there wasn't work. Nobody's hired them. That's all we know. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, so he's got a boss, he's got a guy that's running the crew of laborers. He says, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So the day is now over. Right, He went back to the marketplace at 5 o'clock. About an hour has passed. It's now 6. Day's over. He says, all right, gather them up, line them up, put the guys who came last at the front of the line, put the guys who were here early this morning at the back of the line, and pay them. Now, the, la- the guys at the front of the line, they've literally only been in the vineyard working for like 45 minutes. Right? He came and hired them at the 11th hour, and presumably they had to walk at least a little ways to get to the fields. So 30, 45 minutes. The very best case scenario, a full hour, 
And they're at the front of the line. It seems like the guys who've been here all day, well, they should be the ones that get paid first. Let them go home. They've been here longer. But he says, no, put the guys who came last at the front. But this whole idea of getting paid at the end of the day, super duper normal. Everybody got paid at the end of the day in these kinds of scenarios. This was a cultural expectation, and it was a cultural expectation for the Jewish people because God declared that it should be. Leviticus 19, verse 13. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So there was a clear expectation from God that if you hire somebody to work for you during the day, you need to pay them at the end of the day. It would be unacceptable for you to withhold payment until tomorrow so your money can earn more interest or something like that. But he says to begin with the last and work backwards to the front, to the, to the people who came there at the beginning. It's not mentioned as an actual problem in the passage. Nobody seems to have difficulty with the fact that he says, pay the guys who got here last first. But you can imagine the guys that have been there longer are like, eh, that's lame. I've been here for 12 hours. Can I just get my money and get out of here? This guy's in here for like 45 minutes. Make him wait a little longer. The idea of paying the last workers to arrive first certainly makes the point that Jesus is making. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. But it doesn't really change the outcome because the outcome of the, of the guys that have been there longer being upset and grumbling definitely happens. We'll see that in just a minute in verse 10. But verse 9 first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, so they're at the front of the line, each of them received a denarius. So if we remember, that's the price that the guy negotiated with the very first group of guys. So the guys that literally just showed up, that worked 45 minutes, an hour, step up to the table where the foreman is sitting with his sack full of denarius, denariuses, denarii, whatever, coins, money. They're expecting something meager. He just hired me an hour ago. Something's better than nothing. He agreed to pay those guys in denarius. I'll probably get a twelfth of a denarius. That seems reasonable. And if that's what he gives me, I'll be happy. But what does he give them? The foreman hands them a full denarius, a full day's wage. How would that have felt for those guys? My first reaction would be like, whoa, hang on. Are you, you know that I'm, I'm one of the guys he just hired. Like, this is a lot. I was only in, I was only, I, I did like the grapes off like two plants. Full denarius? Yep, that's what he wants to pay you. Whoa, Nice. That's exciting, right? The guys in the middle, the guys that he agreed to pay fairly, they're like, he's giving denarius out. He gave that guy denarius. We might get like three. We might get a week's pay here. This is pretty sweet. We take it for granted that that's the way it ought to work. More work earns more pay. And less work, less pay. That seems fair. That seems reasonable. That seems just. The laborer deserves his wages. But this employer, this master of the house, is kind of breaking that whole paradigm because he's not operating the way that we operate. He's not operating the way they operate. This employer is operating on some completely different system. But we don't know what that system is. It just seems to be very beneficial to the people at the front of the line. So we and those workers can't really shake the notion that rewards should be commensurate with earning. I should get what I deserve, and I should deserve what I get. If that guy was doing business like that today, he would find himself in a lawsuit almost immediately, right? Oh, uh, hang on. <laughs> You'll hear from my lawyer. Uh, you cannot pay that guy 12 times as much as me when I did 12 times as much work as him. That does not thought that work. First of all, I'm not paying you 12 times as much. I'm paying you the same. Well, it feels like 12 times. 
So you'd have this lawsuit issue coming up. And that guy probably goes out of business before too long because his payroll costs are through the roof. He doesn't understand how to run business. He's bad at this. Unless he's doing something else, which does seem to be the case. But in, in, in terms of the way that the workers looked at him and the way that we look at him when we read the story, we think this guy, this guy is, he's nice. He's been real nice to these guys. But this feels weird. Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, so we've gone through the line, everybody keeps getting a Daenerys, and all the people at the front of the line are like, this is the best day. I'm looking for this guy tomorrow. I'm going to stand and wait for him. You want to hire me? No, I'm looking for that guy, the guy, the crazy guy with all the Daenerys, right? They're excited. Now we get to the back of the line. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. They observed what happened to the people in the front of the line. They worked very little, and they got paid a Daenerys. I worked a lot. Am I about to get 12 denariuses? Maybe. That would be awesome. Sure seems like that. This guy seems real generous. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be awesome. And we, so it seems like a right expectation that they would expect to receive more. But what do they get? Exactly what was agreed upon. They get a denarius. And they're like, mm, hang on. I thought you were paying, it looked like you were paying a denarius an hour. That's what that guy got. I should be getting 12 over here. What's happening? Right? When it's their turn, they get the same denarius that the 45-minute punks got. That's not fair. And so what do they do about it? They do what any self-respecting man would do if he felt like he'd been treated unfairly or cheated. They complain. They speak up. Verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. These guys are seriously concerned about fairness, just like you or I might be. And they aren't just appealing to the amount of time. They're not just saying, I worked 12 times longer than that guy. They're also saying, the conditions that I worked in were worse. You hired me at six. I worked all the way through the middle of the day when it was blazing hot and we were sweating. It was horrible. You hired those guys at five. The sun had already mostly gone down. They came out and got to work in the cool of the day for one hour, and they're getting the same pay? Mm-mm. No, sir. These guys work less, and they got to do it in better conditions. This was like me when I got that job. All right, I thought the pay sounded great, but later I realized more money could have been made, and suddenly I felt ripped off. But he offered me the job. He offered me a specific dollar amount, and I totally agreed, and I thought it was great. But my perspective changed when I realized more money was available, potentially. Verse 13, now the master of the house replies. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. The master of the house is pointing out, I've not wronged you. You've not been swindled. You've not been baited and switched. I gave you exactly what we agreed to. I saw you this morning. I said, I'll give you a denarius for a day's work. You said yes. You gave me a day's work. I'm giving you a denarius. You've got nothing to complain about. Verse 15, he goes on and says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? This is my sack of money. If I want to give it all to somebody, that's my business. Do you begrudge my generosity? 
Are you mad because I'm being kind to someone and it just isn't you? He's asserting, asserting what is, of course, true. He can do what he wants with his money. He isn't trying to pay these men less. He's merely choosing to pay everyone the same, regardless of when they came to work. He's also clearly pointing out to them where their difficulty actually is. It's not with the amount that they were paid. They agreed to that. Their problem is with the generosity being shown to someone else that doesn't seem to deserve it as much as them. They're not, you're not showing generosity in the same way because we did more. But like we already observed, this man isn't motivated by those things. This master of the house isn't making payment based on the amount of time they worked, the amount of work they did, the quality of the work they did. He simply chooses which men are going to be his workers and then pays them all the same which he's free to do. And so Jesus here finishes this parable in verse 15. Verse 16 is not part of the parable. Verse 16 is Jesus turning back to his disciples and saying to them, so, in light of this parable I just told you, the last will be first and the first last. So Jesus is telling his disciples, he has bookended this parable with that phrase. So the first will be last and the last will be first. He's saying, this is what it's about. This is what I want you to understand. He's telling the disciples that the whole parable was being used to explain to you what that phrase means. Now, there have been a lot of interpretations about this parable, and those interpretations focus primarily on the workers. Some have said the parable is about those who follow Jesus early versus those who follow Jesus late, the 12 disciples versus everybody else. He's trying to help the disciples see, hey, I chose you first, but I'm choosing other people later, and I love them just as much, and you need to be okay with that. Some people would say that that's what this parable is about. Others have suggested this is a comparison of Jewish disciples that come to Jesus during his ministry and the Gentile disciples who will come later. And still others have said it's just a look at conversions, trying to help believers understand, hey, some people are going to come to faith at a really young age. And some people are going to come to faith on their deathbed. And you ought not to begrudge the people that come to faith on their deathbed just because they got to live a life of debauchery and then still be saved. And those are all interesting. But I think the most faithful and correct interpretation of this passage is to put the focus not on the workers, but put the focus where Jesus puts the focus, on the master of the house. The focus that Jesus is on is the master of the house, remembering that he said at the very beginning of the parable, the kingdom of God is like a master of a house. I'm telling you the story of a master of a house. I'm not telling you the story of workers. I'm not telling you the story of money. I'm telling you the story about this person, this man. Jesus is using this parable to highlight the the upside-downness of the kingdom. And what does that even mean? What do we mean by upside-downness? We just mean that God's ways are not our ways. The way we think think things ought to be, the way we want things to be, are not the way God has things set up to be. God's ways are not our ways. We see God operating, and we say, that doesn't seem right. And then we think we're right for thinking that. And that's the point that he's trying to make. That's what he's trying to help us see. The master of the house in our parable represents God. The denarius that he's paying to each of these workers represents salvation. God, like the master in our story, chooses those that he wants and then blesses them. It doesn't matter how old they are when he chooses them. 
It doesn't matter whether they've done something good or done something bad. He simply chooses who will be his, and they all get the same incredible gift. They all get the same Savior. They all get the same salvation. They all get the same Jesus. The one who comes to faith at age seven and lives a life of faithfulness up until their 90s gets the exact same Savior as the person who comes to saving faith in Christ on their deathbed after having lived a long life of debauchery. Jesus is using this narrative to succinctly explain to his disciples and then to us a concept that Paul elucidates really thoroughly in his epistles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Literally one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is what Jesus is talking about in this parable. Salvation is a work of God, not of man. We've been saved by a sheer act of divine grace. God is merciful and kind to rescue us from sin. We did not, we have not, do not, cannot earn it. It's a gift that he chooses to give to whomever he will. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Not because of anything we have done does God save us, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. This is the upside-downness of the kingdom. We think that we should get what we deserve and we should deserve what we get. But that's not the way the kingdom works. God doesn't operate the way that we do. We believe really strongly in merit, in believing that we have what we have earned. We believe in fairness, getting what we deserve. That's what caused those men in our parable to grumble against the master of the house. We believe it so much, we can be inclined to think that God is somehow unjust when we see that being saved or not being saved is somehow completely up to him. That's not fair, God. I'm working real hard over here. My dad's a real good dude. Why won't you save him? You are not fair. You are not just, God. But Paul sees that argument because he understands how the human heart works, and he addresses it in Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul is addressing the specific charge of injustice against God here. We might call it unfairness. In the previous verses, Paul was talking about how God chose Jacob and not Esau, and that he did it before they were even born. Paul knows how humans operate, how they think, and he knows that hearing that God chose one over the one brother over the other, even before they were born, before they had any opportunity to do anything good or bad, Paul knew that that would create in the hearts of men and the reader. Ugh, that's a fair, that's unjust. And those workers who were in the vineyard felt the same thing. They worked all day and they didn't get paid less, but they did feel like they were being treated unfairly. We feel the same thing when we read the story. Every single one of us thought, well, that doesn't seem right. Those guys really worked hard. They deserve more money than the 45-minute boys. They earned it. Who did you identify with the first time you heard this parable? If you're honest, you probably identified with the workers that had been there all day. The human heart loves justice. We love fairness. So we empathize with and we identify with these workers who came early, got hired, agreed to a certain payment, went and did the work. Now somebody else is getting paid more. That doesn't seem fair. And so we think of ourselves as those early morning workers. But that's not who we are. We're the 11th hour workers. Every Christian is an 11th hour worker. That's how God is treating you. You have not earned what he gives. You do not deserve it. This is a parable about the grace of God, particularly about the standard that God uses to determine who gets that astounding grace. The difficulty that Jesus is trying to point out by telling this parable about the first, last, and the last first is the failure of the human heart to understand that God's grace is what he's highlighting. We tend to apply our own vision of fairness to salvation. That's ridiculous. If we got fair from God, we would be very sad indeed. We can think that some people have better earned God's favor than others. But if we actually think that, we don't understand what it takes to earn it. Because what is the standard? What does it take to earn God's favor? It takes perfection. You don't have to be good. You don't have to, like, really be a nice person. You have to be perfect. That's the expectation God has. And Jesus told, it, told us that just a few chapters back in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the actual standard. And nobody beats it. Nobody earns it. That's the point. We are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. We cannot do what must be done. And so therefore we have to depend completely on the grace of God. God saves people simply because he chooses to. Salvation comes to the human heart because of nothing to do with that person. Nothing about Carl made me worthy of saving. There is nothing good in me that has me measuring up. 
It is everything to do with the one who did the choosing. Everything to do with God, nothing to do with me. It is his infinite love and mercy and kindness that caused him to choose to save some. Because all are undeserving. All Christians are the 11th hour worker. None of us have been here all day and somehow deserve what he's giving out. No Christian has grounds for grumbling or complaining about what God has done because no one deserves what he freely gives. Nobody's missing out on something good like those workers who'd been there all day felt. When we try to apply fairness to the idea of salvation, it typically shows up in one of two different ways. One, you will live a life of trying to earn God's favor. You will spend your life reading your Bible, praying, putting others before yourself, being kind, trying to be faithful to all of God's commands for the wrong reason. Because reading your Bible is great, and you should totally do it. Praying without ceasing is fantastic, and you should totally do it. Putting others before yourself is exactly what he expects of you, and you should totally do it. But you should not do it with the mindset that I'm going to earn something good from God. I will be a good boy, and then God will love me. Because that's not how it works. He loved you first, before you even wanted to be a good boy or a good girl. He loved you. He set his love upon you, chose you, drew you to himself, adopted you into his own family, justified you through the power of Christ. And now you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you're putting others before yourself, not in order to purchase something from him, but just as an offering of thanks. Thank you for being my God. Thank you for saving me. I want to do whatever you ask because you rescued me. My life of faithfulness does not earn me anything. It does demonstrate where my heart lies, who my love is. I love the one who saved me. And so you can read your Bible and you can pray and you can care for others. You can do all the things he asks you to do for the wrong reasons, thinking that you're earning God's favor. But the reality is you have his favor already, Christian. He has set his love upon you and counted you righteous, perfect, spotless, blameless. Because of Jesus, Jesus already crushed it. Jesus already met the standard of perfection that you must meet and don't. He came and lived a perfect life without sin that you were expected to live, but you didn't. He came and died on a cross, taking the punishment for your sin that you were supposed to take, but now you don't have to because he's taken it for you. He went into the grave and rose three days later, demonstrating that he is who he says he is, that you will follow him in all of those things. You will share in this perfect life because he gives you his righteousness. You will share in his death because it counts for you. And you will share in that resurrection when he returns. And so that's the first one. You are trying to apply fairness to God and to his salvation that he freely gives to whomever he will often looks like trying to earn something from God. Don't do that. Don't spin your wheels. Don't waste your time. Read your Bible. Pray. Love others. Love God above all else. Do the things he's asked you to do and recognize that you earn nothing by doing them. That you merely demonstrate your love for the one who saved you from those things, who did accomplish what you could never accomplish. The second way that we tend to get this fairness issue wrong 
is we tend to look at God and cry foul when people we love are not saved. That's my son, why won't you save him? It's my dad, why won't you save him? This is my best friend since kindergarten, why won't you save him? What's wrong with you, God? Why won't you do this? That's not fair. I've shared the gospel with him over and over again, and he doesn't trust you. Why are you withholding your love from somebody that I love? And we have to remember, God is not unfair. The one who's getting unfair is you. God is being fair with everyone who's separated from him for eternity. That's what we all deserve. What is fair is none of us get in. That's fair. Because he set the standard and we don't meet it. What's unfair is him choosing to rescue you even though you don't deserve it. You want unfair. You want that from him. Jesus is telling this parable in order to help us see, help his disciples see, that the master of the house, God, chooses those that he wants and chooses them based on nothing in them and everything in himself, and that he gives all the same generous gift. Every believer gets the same salvation. Every Christian gets the same Jesus. And that's what we're meant to understand. That's what we're meant to learn from this parable. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He's saying, you don't understand the way I operate. You think that you can earn it. You can't. You think that you might deserve what I give. You don't. This is beautiful and good because you have not earned it, because you don't deserve it. God is gracious and merciful to rescue you. It's a gift. It's an incredible gift. When we see this correctly, when we see God's grace and salvation correctly, it ought to cause our hearts to rejoice. And the burden that we carry around of, I got to get it right, should fall away. I don't have to fear. I don't have to be anxious that I'm not getting it right. Because the scriptures are clear. I'm not getting it right. That is the reality of my existence. I don't get it right. I am not faithful. I am not perfect. I am a wicked sinner in need of a savior. And I have one. I am broken. I am ugly. I am unlovable. I am unchoosable. And yet he's chosen me. And yet he loves me. And yet he has been gracious and kind to me. That's incredible. I don't need to earn it. I don't have to do anything to get the favor that he's already given me. He declares me to be righteous. He declares that I am perfect. He declares that I am spotless, that I have done no wrong. When he looks at me, he sees Jesus. That's amazing. That's incredible. What a gift. And we know that with our brains, and we often deny it with our hearts. Yes, that's totally right. It's totally God. He chooses who he wants. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Election, I get it. And I'm going to go home and read my Bible. I'm hoping that God will love me a little more. We still do it because we are broken. The perfection that we need is elsewhere, and it is imputed to us. Someone else has met the mark. Someone else has been measured up to God's standard. Someone else has done what needs to be done. So rest, rejoice, celebrate that you have a good God 
who gives good gifts to his children. And the greatest gift that he's ever given is Jesus, the one who came, who we will be thinking about for the next month specifically about the fact that he came. He came and he lived the life you were meant to live. He died the death you deserve to die. And then he didn't stay dead. That's incredible. And all of that purchases for you and for me the ability to stand before the throne and to not be turned away, but to be welcomed in. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we'll hear. Not because we've actually done it right, but because somebody else has. That's what we're meant to learn. That's what this parable is about. God chooses whomever he wills, and he blesses them equally. Everybody gets the same Jesus. What a good story. If we understand it correctly, it should cause us to rejoice and celebrate in who our God is. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you. We thank you that it is true, that you are good, that you are faithful, that you have done for us what must be done by sending your son. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you came and that you did what needed to be done. You lived a life of perfection without sin. That you died a death you did not deserve. The one person in the world who didn't deserve to die for sin is the one who does. And so we thank you that that's true. And so when we think about this parable, when we think about the first being last and the reality that the way our God operates is backwards from the way we operate, we pray that you'll set our hearts free to worship you with the knowledge that it is good that you don't operate the way we operate. It is good that your ways are different from us and they're better. And so help us to understand and embrace your ways because our ways are foolish. Our ways don't work. And so we confess that we need you. We are broken sinners in need of grace, in need of a Savior, and you have faithfully provided through the giving of your Son. And so we just praise your name. We thank you for who you are, for what you have done. Help us. Help us, Lord, to not dismiss the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ, the reality that he's made payment, that he's met your standard for us. Help us not to try to measure up and earn something more than what you've already freely given. But let us walk in faithfulness. Let us pursue righteousness. Let us flee from temptation. Let us make war against our sin. Not that we might earn something from you, but because we've already received everything from you. And so we thank you that those things are true, even though it's hard for us to grab hold of them with our hearts sometimes. And so thank you for being our God. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your spirit that helps us to see the truth of what your word teaches. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.